Oh my gosh, guys, how are you? I hope everybody is well, healthy. I hope you're having fluid conversations out there. I hope everybody's feeling evolved and um, I hope you're feeling vibrant. You know, these, these days, weeks have been very hard, but it's been a really grand opportunity for each of us to take an introspective look at ourselves and our conversations and our circles and our environments to do better and be better. And my guest today is specifically for that. I know that if you guys tune into Listen Honey, you know that I'm really always obsessed talking about the way our mind works. Why do we think the way we do? Why do we react the way we do? And how do we come out our best selves when we learn and understand the origins of, of our actions? And so today I have a very special guest, the first ever actually of my kind, which is Dr. Kafui Jirasa. So Dr. Kafui is the first African-American to complete a PhD in neurobiology at Duke University. And Dr. Kafui's research interest focuses on the understanding how changes in the brain produce neurological and mental illnesses. Kafui has obtained an MD from the Duke University School of Medicine. You've also been awarded the International Mental Health Research Organization Rising Star Award, the Cindy Bear Prize for Schizophrenia Research. You go on and on the, in your accolades and awards and achievements. And Dr. Kafui, my favorite thing about you is you speak in regular terms so I can understand what the <laughs> hell you're saying. <laughs> so Dr. Kafui, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you feeling, by the way? Yeah, it's, you know, it's just uh, the world is changing and it seems to be changing in a new way every few weeks. So, you know, I'm doing my best to keep myself optimistic and hopeful about the future, but continue to work, make, uh, do my best to work to make that today better. So yeah. I'm hanging in there. Yeah. Man, I can only imagine as a neuroscientist, like, do you sit back and read the news and just assess what is like, can you just read the news and see whether it's a Karen or uh, an anger management um, uh, situation or a, a police that's uh, that's act all kinds of wrongs and you go, I know exactly what that person needs or I know exactly what's wrong with that person. Like, can you assess what's going on with people when you see the situation because you're so educated in that space? Well, you know, I'm a neuroscientist and I'm a psychiatrist, right? Right. <laughs> so so I, I spend a lot of time observing um, and listening. For me, it's always important to hear from people directly. You know, there's, there's both our ability to look at the things we see on TV, which I'll just loosely call stimuli, right, and form conclusions based on them. But it's always important to challenge the conclusions and the formations that we're making with additional information. You know, one of the things I'll say is I think we've just, as, as, a, as a nation, done a really poor job in listening to each other. And I think solving a lot of things is going to require more listening than talking. Mm. When you say listening, I think the average person is going to be like, what do you mean? I can hear people just fine. What do you mean by active listening? Yeah, active listening means really, it's not just simply trying to put ourselves in other people's shoes. It's literally developing shared empathy, right? This is the ability to make choices that are good for other people. You know, last time we were together, I sort of joked about this idea that, you know, that there are two types of people in the world, right? We were talking about COVID and they said, there's a type that hoards and then a type that gives their food away for everybody else. But if you think about the way organisms work, they basically evolve over time, right? So this was Darwin's um, perspective. When you think about evolution, right? You take a, one type of pea or one type of fruit, you mix it with another one, and there are traits that become more dominant. 
right? And so if there's a plant that can tolerate um, the heat and low, uh, basically low sunlight better, that's the one that grows in the environment with uh, the heat and low sunlight. If there's one that needs more water, that's the one that grows near the water. So if you look at the, the human species over time, we probably have had two traits that have been optimized. One is the one that says, I want to survive, right? This idea that we have survival of the fittest. Right. And that trait is undoubtedly out there. But there is another trait which says, what is best for the species? And that trait's probably been optimized as well, right? It's a trait that says, I'm willing to sacrifice for myself such that 10 people over there can do much better and live healthier lives. And so I think when I say active listening, it's figuring out how to tap into that trait that we all have that says, what can I do to make the lives of 10 people better? But we have to listen um, and develop empathy with those 10 people to know what choices we can make. Ooh, you said my favorite word in the entire world, empathy. Yeah. And I swear, doctor, if I had actual magical genie capabilities, and I could bless everybody with one gift worldwide, I would give them the gift of empathy because I don't believe that empathy, I think empathy is harder to learn at a later age. So yep. how, do, how does one develop empathy? Is it the parent's responsibility to teach empathy? How do you do a self-check to see if you have the right amount of empathy to be productive and to be a good citizen? Like, how do you really build empathy like a muscle? Yeah. Yeah, I think that the idea of a muscle is perfectly correct, right? We are learning machines, period. Human beings are learning machines. It's what we do. And part of what we learn is how to optimize ourselves with the environments that we're in. And so I don't think it's a way of saying, does a human being have empathy or not? It's how much work have they done in developing and optimizing that empathy? Right? If, if you're one who grows up and the entire world revolves around you, it's not surprising to think that you will be an adult who thinks the entire world revolves around you. Right? Um, if you're one as a child who you constantly see learning to share and learning how to solve problems with other people, you become much better at that as an adult. Right? It's why if you look at professional athletes, they tend to start in their craft relatively young because it takes a long time to protect, perfect those skills. So I, I do think we, we need to do a better job in helping our young people learn how to experience one another. Um, and then share space with each other as well. I think in, in some ways, our young people live in an entirely different time than we grew up in. I can at least speak for myself. You know, I predate cell phones, <laughs> right? Which means I definitely predate Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and these ways that allow people who don't share physical space to be connected with each other. I think there's a tremendous opportunity now. We, we have a country that in a lot of ways has over time separated people in physical space based on whether it's racial demographics or socioeconomic status, that these new technologies allow us to bridge if they are implemented in the right way. And, and I think we as a society really need to think about how we can use those tools that allow people to share space, even though they're not physically together, to build shared empathy. As an adult, you're saying that we need to be cognizant of our space that we have, the world we live in, the communities we're part of, the neighborhood, the, the house we share, to really develop that empathy to think about others before ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about the, the events that have caused so much dramatic shift, right, um, especially in the last week and a half, many people will say 
that they've had similar experiences of racism, right? Whether it's in the police or whether it's in the workplace or industry or school or education or in their training. And, and so this is not a surprise for many people. This is, a, this is an experience that's been repeated throughout every avenue of their life. And yet, at the same time, a new set of people seeing that stimuli and experiencing the gravity of watching over the course of eight minutes a human being's life being taken in a way um, that is a product of their skin color drove a sense of shared empathy where people said, this is me, this is human, this cannot happen to another human. Correct. And, and so I think if we can figure out how to build and drive that shared empathy, even though people don't live in the same physical space, um, if we could take advantage of technology to drive shared empathy, we'll make the world a better place and, and make ourselves as a human species uh, thrive. Okay, so this is, I, I hear everything you're saying, and I would like to think that I'm pretty self-aware of empathy to constantly be working on it to make sure that I'm looking at situations outside myself. So I'm going to take it to something I, I view a lot, which is today we're, we're seeing and not because it's just happening, it's just because we're pressing record, we're seeing a lot of the hate that's happening out there, whether it's um, a white woman like an Amy Cooper who feels privileged to use someone's color as a threat and, and pose herself in, as a victim, or you know, police brutality, police taking um, their angst out on somebody of color, or just random protesters. So when you are angry and when you, for whatever reason, feel you are being threatened or that you are, or to the point that you've had it. Can, do you still have empathy there? And where has yeah. it gone for you to actually yeah. go and attack someone else or act inhumane to hurt yeah. somebody else? Yeah. So you know and, what I'm saying? And, like, is there a yeah. chance for those people? Yeah, no, I am. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist. So I've been right. trained, I've been trained uh, to a large degree to sometimes try my best to suspend my own personal experiences and enter into other people's spaces, right? So I, I'll tell you, um, one of the real biases uh, that I've worked hard to confront is whenever I feel like the world has shifted in a way that I didn't predict, it means that I have to do something to overcome some of my biases because I haven't been connected with that part of the world, so I didn't expect the outcome, right? So, you know, it... it, it it shouldn't be a surprise, right? Um, if you think about exit polling from the last election, right? I'm, I'm black, I'm a male, I have multiple degrees, um, and I live in the middle of a state that has this bright blue spot in it. <laughs> and I, I remember after the last election thinking to myself, what just happened? Like, like nobody I talked to could have saw this coming. This is like totally not the world I expected to live in. And as I looked at the exit polling, I realized I'm like right in the middle of these concentric circles. That's like 90% of like black men voted this way, 90% of young people, 90% of those who are educated, voted, like 90%. And I felt like right into this little center where there was like a 0.00001% chance that I would think in a different way. <laughs> and, and so I realized um, what I needed to do was really expose my thinking um, and figure out how to build some sense of empathy with people who thought in a different way. And that doesn't mean at the end of that process that I'll think the same way. It means can I find something that helps me to understand? And, and certainly, um, as I was wrestling and, and talking uh, to, to broader groups of people, 
I saw this really interesting perspective that came out of the uh, exit polling data. And one of the things it asked was, do you believe that things will be better for your kids? Right? Um, and those who tended to vote in a different way uh, than, than um, those in the middle of my concentric circles did, uh, all said they don't think the, the, the things are going to be better for their kids than them. And, and as I started to explore this idea, I, I, I thought about a parent um, who had children, right? And that parent, um, it makes a lot of sense if you say, look, I'm hungry, I'm starving. Um, does this group get, of kids get the food or do I get the food? And almost everybody would say, I will starve so that the kids can have the food, right? But the question becomes very different when you say, there's only enough food for one kid and do you give it to your kid or another kid, right? It produces a much more complicated ethical dilemma in which then it says, well, I'm really worried about my kid. So it's not that I'm a bad person, right? Um, it's, it's, it's just that I have this innate love for my kid's well-being and something that's very human drives me to say, I need to do whatever I can for my kid. And so this idea that your children would inherit a future that's not as bright as yours would produce a response that says, well, that's not innately what I want for my children. And that's a response that many people would consider quite normal, right? When you take that very normal human response and layer it onto a history uh, in this country, because history is always important, in which people have had access to different things, you can say part of the Part of the goal of a good part of the country is for some kids to have more and some kids to have less. So balancing literally means reorganizing and bringing into a, a, an equal framework, right? And that can easily be interpreted as, yes, some kids will therefore have less because somebody has, something has more. So this human experience is then mapped onto history in ways that then if we don't sit and find empathy and work through our biases, we're totally blindsided by the world changing around us. And is it possible to be so angry or so um, unaware of yourself that you're pretty much a lost cause and a danger to society because you aren't working on, like, you know what I mean? You're not working on your empathy. Like what you're saying makes sense for somebody who is gonna go, cool, okay, I need to be more mindful about my circumstances, my, my, my circumference, my mindset, my pains, my hate, whatever it is, right? But then what about the people who aren't? I mean, we see that in videos every day now. It, it, social media yeah. has exposed that. So yeah. how, how do you, how do you even begin to bring that up to somebody? And, I, and I'll bring it to a, a better, a, an even more relatable scenario. I hope my fans can understand this. But when we watch videos of Karens, and I'm using air quotes, Karens and whack cops out there or racists, we see them and we go, man, how are you like this? You are so racist. How have you been walking your whole life thinking this? What, what, da, 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 da. Now, the other side that's happening in our own circles is these situations today have really given us an opportunity to have these conversations in our own home with our own partners, with our own family members and friends. So we are see seeing very clearly the friends that are pro-Trump, anti-Trump, pro-equality, and not so much my business equality. And so you're starting to see people that are either anti-racist or maybe just more compliant, right? And that is where in your own you know, 
like that's where in your own mind you make the decision on whether or not that person deserves to still be in your your space or whatnot but if you are that friend that wants to teach the person to have more empathy or wants to encourage empathy to be an open conversation so you can grow together how do you have that so so for example if i talk to somebody who really who, who i'm realizing you are kind of racist or you absolutely do have prejudice against a certain person of color if you notice this, what do you do? How, how do you begin to have empathy yourself so that you reduce your anger or your frustration and you build maybe the empathy that you can share and help to plant the seed with that other person? Yeah, so let me, let me answer the first part of your question, okay. right? Which is, um, do I think that there are horrible people in the world, <laughs> right, who will just be horrible? Oh, I yes. love it. There's yes. my headline. Yes. Okay. Yes. I do not think that that is the vast majority of people. Of <laughs> right? Yes. Um, now, now, I will say, right, um, I'm a scientist, so I, I don't think it takes a whole lot of yeast to make the dough rise, right? And so we can say things like, oh, that's just one bad apple, right? But a little bit of yeast can still make the whole dough rise. So that one Come bad on, apple, doctor. Yes. That one, that one bad apple is super important, right? Um, but that little bad apple aside, right? What you're really thinking about and what you're talking about is how do we take the rest of the dough and prevent it from rising? If Correct. we can figure out how to remove Correct. the yeast, right? And, and I think much of that starts with, instead of saying, how can I change and get through to the person, right? It is, how can I understand the person and build shared empathy and connection, which is what produces the change? Right, and so I, I always talk about this, right? And part of part of this is it's the problem with what the brain does, right? So the brain has all kinds of amazing flaws, <laughs> and those flaws are what we see. It it shows up when you put a lot of people together, right? So one of the real flaws of the brain is that we accept information from trusted sources, right? We as a species have evolved to do that so we can survive because we can't check all the facts, right? If we had to check all the facts, we would like run out of time and like we would get eaten by the tiger instead of somebody else getting eaten by the tiger. Right. Hopefully some other animal get eaten by the tiger. So we learn where to acquire information from and then we stop checking the sources all the time, right? I can say this um, as a scientist, right? Like I honestly believe that there is DNA. It's a real thing, right? I have never myself <laughs> looked at the structures of atoms and verified that there's DNA, right? Like I read it in a textbook mm, right, and I right. believe it, right? There's any, any endless number of scientific things that I accept as pure fact. And the reason I accept them is because a scientist told me that they were the truth, right? And so I, I, I often sit back and, you know, I, I, I gather news from a lot of sources. And I said, well, if you trusted this, you would form a shape of the world that looks like this. And then here are the choices that you would make, right? So the human brain, it is built, we are a social species. It is built to pull information from people you trust. So the first question of all of from this people is who you, you trust. trust. From people you trust, right? And so that's why the empathy is so important because once you can build empathy and trust, that's when you can then move information, right? We always want to start by moving information to change behavior as if we ourselves also aren't taking information in that we haven't verified, right? We just literally don't have time to verify the amount of information. Right. We say, is this a trusted source? So if you ever want to, to move perspective, 
we should start from how do we build trusted sources and trusted relationships, right? Um, and, and I'm not an apologetic by any stretch of the imagination, um, and I don't um, make excuses for behavior. Um, I myself have been profiled and had experiences like that, right? But one of the things I always say is that the brain is very unique in its ability to predict the future, right? It's built to do this, right? And the reason the brain is built to do this is because every experience we have is an experience that's in the past, right? So whenever someone talks, or whenever you see something moving, your brain actually takes time to process it. So our brain finishes the sentence before it's done, right? If you see a car coming at you, you know it's gonna hit you in 10 seconds, so you swerve to the left, right? Oh, because right. your brain is constantly predicting the future based on your past experiences, right? So if you start to understand people's past experiences, you can start to understand how they're operating in the present. And sometimes what's really important then is to take um, and understand people's past experiences, right? I, I was walking with a, a dear friend of mine a couple of years ago after we had dinner. Um, and she's a Caucasian female. She's a white, white female. And we were walking and a police car drove by. And, you know, her first thought was, oh my God, I feel so safe. <laughs> and my thought was, oh, <laughs> right? Like, I'm done. Wow. Right, right. <laughs> and, no, I got and, you. And, and, and in that moment, the exact same stimuli based on our past experiences produced an entirely different present, right? Her experiences was, oh my gosh, if there's a police officer around, I am safe because I'm a woman. So I'm totally safe if there's a police officer around. And my experience was like police make my heart race, right? right. And, and it's not, it's, it, at this point in time, it, it has nothing to do with the officer that was in the car that day. It's that I've had a set of experiences that were dangerous enough that I've learned how to predict danger and avoid danger. And that is why going back to the very start, you said that we as a society have lost the art of listening. Yeah. Because if we really listened, even if we didn't agree, we could understand where people's fear or prejudice comes from and then make a trusted alliance to at least start to transfer the empathy and correct the areas that need to be corrected. Yeah, as a clinician, I spent a lot of time working in the emergency room um, and as a psychiatrist, right? And many times uh, patients would be transferred in, someone would call, um, the patient would be a harm, uh, a danger to themselves or others, and they called 911 and the police would transfer the patient in, right? And so in that interaction, me with my white coat on, my partner is the police officer, right? And they're looking at me and they're saying, hey, doctor, this is what's going on. How can we work together to bring this? And in that setting, I never have the same emotional response to the police officer than I do when I'm in my car or walking um, and, and see a police officer drive by. Because in that setting, I can understand exactly the experience that they're having. Um, thinking about the danger that the patient might cause themselves um, or other people or even them, because that is a shared experience in that and so in that setting, I experience a partner and I understand why they are on guard because I'm equally on guard. So doctor, we have to take a break, but when we come back, I want to take the question even further. Instead of helping other people recognize their prejudice or their racist antics, now how do we recognize it ourselves and make the changes within ourselves that we need? We are back with Dr. Kafui, who is breaking it down, man, how our brain works, how we can psychologically understand our brain better so that we can change the things that we need to change 
and how we are responsible for the way that we think. And, and what I love already that you're giving me hope that it's never too late to just reconstruct the things that we, the way that we think and the way that we've been reacting to things. So we've talked about how to handle somebody who maybe has a different way of looking at things, even to something as extreme as a, a you know, a person that we know that may be racist or um, has racist characteristics. What about if that's something that you notice within yourself? So I've always wondered, this is a weird question, doctor, but fly with me here. I used to wonder if somebody has really bad BO, like if I really stink, will I know that I stink or do I only smell myself? Does that make sense? Because I'm always, you know, when I smell things, I'm like, how am I going to be the judge of character if I stink? I've got to give this to somebody else like my mom. Now, (laughs) my question to you is, can somebody racist know they're racist? And how do we do a self-check to make sure that we don't have racist characteristics? Yeah. So I I think part of what is really challenging about this idea of, uh, or the term being racist is that folks uh, classically uh, uh, appreciated as an idea that somebody is worse than me, right? So you are worse than me, right? And if I don't think that somebody's worse than me, I'm not a racist, right? Um, it's probably a little more complicated than that, right? Um, the framework is probably I am better than somebody else, <laughs> right? So not that somebody else is worse than me, I am better than somebody else. And and, and what makes this framework really, really complicated, particularly in the United States, um, if you think about it historically, right, um, when we decided we didn't want to have a king over us, it's not that we were saying that no one is better than us. We were saying we can be king too, right? So in in much Mm. ways, the, the idea that pervades us is not a somebody is better than me. It's that I can be king too. Right? right. And ingrained in that framework of I can be king too, right? Which is exactly what the American dream is, right? Is totally. I can be king too, right? Totally. Um, that Equal was tied, Yes, that was tied to race in our country, right? So the idea that I can be king has always been mixed into this idea that there are differences in races, right? And, and to, some way, the, to some extent, learning in the brain is parent. Right? When you pair two things together, that is learning. And so the idea of race and superiority, and superiority not meaning that like um, I'm a white supremacist, but saying I can be king too, has been paired with race in a way that has led to the structure that we see today. Mm. Right? Um, yes. <laughs> Interesting. So how do you, so how do you recognize that within yourself and how do you correct that? How do you self-correct that? You know, like if, man, this is, this is, I mean, obviously it depends (laughs) on each person, but if you could, if if you were to sit amongst a group of people who have either been fired from their job for saying something racist or have called the police for some completely innocent act that a person of color have been do- has been doing, what would you say to these people to kind of get them yeah. to do some inner work? Yeah, so to your, to your question about if you had BO, could you smell it, right? Um, the answer is probably no, right? I um, knew it! 
Yeah, so we do uh, what it's what scientists, uh, neuroscientists call accommodation. In other words, we as organisms, we sense change, right? And so we learn, our brain learns, it adapts itself so that it picks up different amounts of change. And when things stop changing, it stops sensing, right? So imagine that, you know, somebody was touching you. You would feel when they touched you, but if they left their hand there, you'd stop feeling it. Right? It's why you probably don't feel your clothes on right now because you've had them on all day. But when you first put it on, you might have felt it. Right? It's why if you turn the light on first thing in the morning, your eyes hurt. But little changes in light don't do the same thing when the lights have been on for a while. Right? So our brain senses change. Right? And so it has a hard time in picking up on things that have been constant. Much of the biases that we have are formed really early in life. Right? If they measure adults, they're extreme biases towards gender and extreme biases uh, towards race. But it turns out that when you're four, the biases that you have match your parents' bias, right? And so these ideas are formed really early in life, and it's hard to see yourself because the brain picks up change, and we don't change relative to ourselves that often and that quickly, right? It means it requires an incredible amount of work and feedback to produce change, right? It may be that moment where you have such a profound response watching something on TV that feels absolutely terrible that then says, I need to look at myself and see if I do things that are actually biased, right? The problem is when you reach that point and you start to look at yourself, um, it produces what psychiatrists call negative affect. In other words, you feel bad, <laughs> right? And right. so you say, well, I've looked at myself and actually have I done some of these things? I feel really bad, right? And it's easier not to feel bad than to keep feeling bad. Totally. To get to the point of understanding and change. Totally. Oh, Part of that's... what we as psychiatrists do is we hold people in places where they feel bad for a while, such that they can get to the change on the other side. You're right. <laughs> yeah, like all of your, your times with psychiatrists are now flashing before you and you're like, why did they keep me feeling bad? <laughs> wait, wait, you're absolutely, wait, 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 that's a major point right there. And that's why one of the biggest learning lessons of this time is it's okay to feel uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. It's necessary to feel absolutely. uncomfortable. And yes. When you're having these deep conversations with yourself and you're recognizing the fault and the owning of some of these instances, you absolutely need to feel uncomfortable and, and stay in that for a minute so you can really digest what has happened and what led you there and maybe even dig to what, what caused that within you at, a, at a, you know, an earlier time. Yeah, but there has to be a reason to do it, right? So for all human beings, and, and here's where um, I think building empathy really hurts. For all human beings, they want to avoid negative feelings, right? Like it's natural. It produces an escape response, right? So whether that's fear, terror, hostility, like, you know, all abandonment, all of these things produce negative feelings. And we want to avoid negative feelings. All yeah. human beings want to do that. Um, unless, there's, unless, you know, you're a masochist, right? But most right, of us right. are. We want to avoid negative feelings, right? Yeah. And we want to move towards positive feelings. Right. And so when we can always keep in mind that simple framework and we have um, empathy for people, we can say they're operating on this framework of moving away from negative feelings and moving towards positive feelings. Right. And so when you're going to produce change and you have to confront that maybe you yourself have biases, which is a natural human thing to do and it makes you feel sure. negative, we want to move away from that. 
but we also have to be able to give some people something to move towards, right? And what we can drive in them to move towards is this idea that we're all in this together. We are a species that cares about each other. We'd be better when we care about each other, which is why building the empathy is so important because it gives them something to move towards while all the negative feelings are saying move away from us. Mm, doctor, you are <laughs> igniting so much more hope in me <laughs> than I've been getting. Maybe it's also because, you know, in quarantine, if I'm honest, I'm guilty for being the person that just really internalizes news. So as I'm watching Instagram and, and, and seeing daily reports of not only just the, the virus, but also how we are, the virus of racism that, that's spreading and, and, and that, that's out there that is more apparent to us right now. You're giving me so much hope and you're reminding me that being human to just reach out, connect, listen, touch one another is still what we need to be doing. It is, it's who, it is what we are as a species, right? Um, you know, whether you believe in a higher power or you believe that higher power is mother nature or <laughs> evolution or whatever it is, right? We fundamentally are species that is entirely connected, right? We gain information from each other. We make choices based on each other. We enjoy each other's judgment. And it, we survive as a species because we can connect with other people. If we were all socially isolated by ourselves, the human species would be gone in 80 years, period. There's no way around it, right? right. Like we produce from connecting with each other. Right. We're not flowers that spread pollen in the air that we produce, right? So even in that connection is how we as a species survive, right? And so it's really important in this time of isolation that we figure out how to maintain as much of that as possible because we are still gathering information and, and cues from each other in ways that shape our world being. And I also want to say to any of my listeners out there who I have talked to a lot of friends where they've had it. They don't feel it's their need to try to change another person's mind or they absolutely don't have the bandwidth to listen to another person's BS or excuses. And I think that's okay too, to protect your energy and to know where your best know where your best conversations are so that you can continue being the light in the right places and that you can continue being the good person you are. Because, yeah. you know, if you're not in that place to um, deal with somebody who's only going to drag you down, weigh you down and make you angry, then that person doesn't deserve your energy. And that's yes. okay to build those boundaries as well. Um, yeah. yeah. God, I, I think it's a team sport, right? You know, yeah. like it, yes. it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter how good you are, right? If you're one person on a football field against the whole team, you lose every single time, right? So I, I think of, about this always as an ability to make impact. Certainly, um, if you put a drop of water in the ocean, it has little impact, right? Um, but if you turn on a little flashlight in an entirely dark room, it has an incredible impact, right? And so I think we always need to be selective about where we place um, our energies. And um, if we're going to be uh, the drop of water in the ocean, we need to get together with a whole lot of drops um, to have an impact. Absolutely. And I appreciate that you said the teamwork mentality because you're actually reminding me of a time, actually several times, where my mom and I were having discussions with more old school Asians about the circumstances of today. And obviously you're going to reach um, you know, the grandparents who don't understand the looting and don't understand the message. And then some people who have really fixed agenda about um, why racism doesn't help anything. I'm sorry, why protesting doesn't help anything. So I don't have the patience 
to honestly sit there and listen and continue the conversation. So I just kind of cut off. My mom taps in and she's like, I got this one. Let me speak to them in Vietnamese. Let me, let me handle this because I can speak to them in a way that they wouldn't understand from you. And I do the reverse for, for people that, you know, she didn't have reach to. And so you're right. Having that team mentality to know, you know, what you're capable of doing and what it's okay to, to, to protect your energy from that allows us to also work as a society so that you don't really necessarily have to picture yourself as removing yourself from the conversation or, or, you know, cutting yourself out of society. We should still work as a team to help. I almost picture it like a seed, you know, as somebody can just plant the seed and be like, yeah, I did my part. I'm out of here. Now your job is to come and water it. Oh, no, somebody else exactly. might come and like yep. bring that sunshine and yep, bring some yep, fertilizer. Yep, yep, yep. And somebody else picks some fantastic oranges and then somebody makes orange juice, you know, every, everybody Amazing plays, doctor. plays a role in, in getting to the outcome. Yeah. You know, for me, I, I, I appreciate the role that different experiences have to, to play in this, right? My, my parents migrated here. So I'm a first generation American. Right? Wow. which means that if you if you look back in, in my family history, it looks a lot different um, than my friends, my colleagues, um, and some of my other loved ones as well. It, but I have inherited the American experience. I was born in Boston, grew up outside of Washington, D.C., went to school outside of Baltimore, yeah. right? My younger brother lives in the Baltimore, <laughs> um, yeah. in downtown Baltimore. So I have inherited the American experiences, right? My nephews were born here, um, and I've watched them grow up in society. I've watched them experience, you know, one of, one of my nephews made the comment that when he was young, everybody thought he was so cute, and everybody of every race would talk to him and give him a hug and pick him up, and then he turned 13 and realized he was a black male, and suddenly everybody was scared of him because he'd mm-hmm. grown one foot, and just that transition and the impact um, that it had on him was a profound awakening to the American experience, right? So I, I can I can sit in a place where I can I can experience all of my family's roots and connections um, in Ghana, which is in West Africa. Um, I've grown up a hundred percent American, right? With my own set of experiences, knowing exactly what it means to experience um, overt and covert racism, bias, um, bias from well-meaning people. Um, I'm a scientist. It means I also have colleagues, um, some that grew up in this country, but also some that migrated here and um, are having kids that are first generation. Here, yeah. right? and, and speaking to them and asking, uh, you know, I, I got a, had a couple of colleagues reach out and ask me to explain like racism to them and racism in the U.S. because they've experienced racism in other parts of the world, but they're like, I don't understand the context and what's different here and how, you know, being black in society and, uh, you know, what is this Jim Crow thing? And so really walking people through what's so unique about the black experience in this country compared to other types of racism in other places. So I think there has to be a role to be able to section out those who are, I would say, almost the racist and proud from the racist because they don't know, but they are getting information from sources that they trust. Um, the racist who have no idea that they're racist to the bias, and if they connected more with people, they would know better and do better. Um, and that portion is important because we as a society have been totally segregated, right? We're segregated on Sundays and church services. If you look even at you know higher higher education institutions, which are supposed to be you know the bastions of learning. Um, the faculty are not even always representing the experience of the American populace, right? And so it's, it's easy to see how people grow up not being exposed to other cultures, other societies, other places in ways that they would build the shared understanding. 
Wow. So many gems from this conversation, doctor. This is amazing. And already um, I understand we all have work to do and it's a continued process to become the better society that we should be, that we can be. It's amazing. Doctor, you're a scientist, a neuroscientist, a, a, a psychologist. Are you on the gram? Like, where do we follow you? <laughs> How do we get more so, of Dr. Kafui? Yeah, so I'm, I, I, I always joke that I have three careers. I'm an engineer by training. Uh, so I'm a biomedical engineer. I'm a neuroscientist, um, and then I'm also a psychiatrist. So I went to medical school and then did clinical training in uh, psychiatry as well. So I'm on Twitter. Uh, I, I, I only got on Twitter because a couple of years ago, uh, a good friend of mine told me that I need to make sure people have more uh, opportunities to access my experience, particularly yes. as a black man, because there's just not a whole lot of uh, folks who are seeing examples of what they could be as a scientist and clinician as well. So I finally relented and set up a Twitter page. Um, I should absolutely get on Instagram, I know. So I am, everyone calls me Kaf or Dr. Kaf, um, but I'm K-A-F, at K-A-F-U-I-D-Z-I-R-A-S-A is my Twitter page. I will set up an Instagram page. You talk me into it. Tweet me yes, out. Yes, please, uh, I'll, doctor. I'll, I'll, we just need I'll get, I'll get my that. life right. <laughs> well, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for taking the time to, to speak to the Listen Honey family and yeah, thank you for just pleasure being so gentle with, with, with showing us and, and encouraging us that, that we all can really be better. So I, I appreciate that. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's of course. Great. And everybody, um, do know that I love reading the reviews for each of the podcasts. That's where I can tap in with you guys and find out exactly where your minds are at and what kind of things that you would like to learn more from and, and, and how to really improve yourselves. And for me, having a podcast is a privilege, straight up, and I want to be able to use this podcast to help everybody else out there um, have access to things that I wouldn't have, you know, if, if I didn't have this podcast. So please do rate and review this podcast. Let me know what you loved about it. Please do reach out and connect with Dr. Kafui on Twitter and hopefully the Instagram page when it happens. And you don't get it right. Don't worry. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And take care of yourself, doctor. I really appreciate it.